0: Every bus shelter in Toronto, you know, if you have an LTD claim that doesn't pay, you know, call
1: ABC lawyers on contingency and away you go. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program. The entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts, We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. We've got a full interview here, so I'll be quick with my lead in comments. First off this episode, which is an interview with Dave Patriarch from Canadian Group Insurance Brokers and Mainstay Insurance. This episode will be good for life insurance credits in all provinces except Alberta, where it will be ANS only, no life insurance credits in Alberta. This is pure ANS content. It will be good for a professional development credit from IROCK. It will be good for an IAS credit, as are all episodes to this date, and also a financial planning credit from FP Canada. The color for today's episode is purple. The color for today's episode is Purple. Okay, just a couple of acronyms here before we hear from Dave. Uh, He's very comfortable in the group insurance world, so he's pretty liberal with his acronyms. So we have TPA, third-party administrator. And I do mention in the episode that we would have just heard from Mike McLenahan. That was my plan. I had actually recorded an interview with Mike McLenahan from Benefits by Design, which is one of Canada's better-known TPAs. However due to my own technical improficiency, that interview has to be redone. So Mike has graciously offered to redo it. We'll be recording that afterwards. So you're not missing something if you hear later on in this interview that the last episode with Mike McClenahan, that's not true. I think he'll be the next episode after this. Dave refers to property and casualty insurance here. PNC insurance is property and casualty insurance. We're actually going to have an upcoming guest who's going to delve into property and casualty insurance and financial planning, and AOR. AOR is agent of record. Every group benefits person will know AOR, but effectively this is the document that a client signs to indicate this is the person who's supposed to represent them with the insurer from whom they are getting their group benefits. Hi, it's uh... Pleasure to have with us today, Dave Patriarch. Dave, of course, a lot of you will know, he's the president, Dave, founder of the sure. Canadian Group Insurance Brokers. I don't even know if you actually have a title there. but Yeah, Founders. I just
0: use yeah. founder. Sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, that works. And also active in his own group benefits practice, which is uh, Mainstay Insurance.
0: Yep.
1: Perfect. Mainstay Insurance Brokerage, yep. Perfect. Thanks, Dave. Yeah. Um, and I know Dave and I had the chance to chat about this recently, but you have really a different story than most people about what brought you into the group benefits side. Can you just go through that with us?
0: Yeah, I think I'm unique because I'm one of the people that decided long in advance of getting into benefits that I wanted to be in it and was how I was going to set up the business. And my background was I was a sales rep for chambers of commerce and boards of trade around the Toronto area for a number of years with a number of them. And uh, I worked really closely with a group insurance uh, brokerage that handled the chamber plan for us. So uh, we spoke almost every day, passing leads back and forth and everything. And uh, in doing that, I learned more and more because I realized that if I could Sell somebody on the group insurance plan. I wasn't selling it, but on the idea of it, then they would say as a member. So that meant my retention for membership was better. So uh, one of the things where I was pushed was you know getting some information on the group plan, and so we'd give them the leads, follow up on them, and and that kind of really helped me learn a lot. And along the way, I kind of asked a lot of questions. So the a prospect for membership would say, Well, I'm I'm not big enough for group insurance. I only have two employees. So I'd go to the broker and say, Hey, can you do a two person group? Yep. And next thing you knew I knew a little bit more about groups so it just kind of evolved and one day I got fired from uh, that job my contract got ended a little bit early and um, and I just put it all in action so in I guess I got terminated Easter 1996 and by June 1st I was licensed and Mainstay was up and running so it was a pretty quick um, decision
1: and implementation. So you've been around long enough to see this I guess do you find there are more group specialists today than there were when you came into the business or do you find it's about the same mix?
0: Oh, that's a great question. I don't know the answer. Uh, I, I definitely know more of them, but I don't know if that's just a virtue of knowing more people across the country and, and uh, that are in the space. There are still a lot of generalists and I would say that there's still, it's a minority that are true group specialists make majority of their
1: income from group. So uh,
0: yeah, it,
1: it's a good question. I would agree that yeah, it's a minority of people who who make their living there. You know, it's uh, one of the things that I always wonder about is has this small group world gotten more complex? Do you find that that's the case? It,
0: it has for sure. I mean, we used to be kind of stuck with traditional plans that were pretty canned from you know the top ten insurance companies, and nobody else really touched it. In fact, when I got into it, if you were under ten employees you were somewhat limited in your offering uh, or, or options. And if you're under five, you might only have a couple of companies. And I remember even when Manulife went down to three and then to two people, everybody went, wow, this is you know groundbreaking. And there's a lot of people that are kind of down to that market now. And we have a lot more TPAs than we ever did and more options overall. So um, it has changed quite a bit kind of into that market. So it has become more complicated just because there's more options, more moving parts. And uh, in Ontario specifically, but I've been seeing it across Canada, we're seeing more employees become more litigious around benefits as well. So every bus shelter in Toronto, you know, if you have an LTD claim that doesn't pay, you know, call ABC lawyers on contingency and away you go. So that's definitely been a factor in the whole game too. Which of course
1: poses risk, not just for the insurer, but for the employer as well.
0: And the advisor as well. Yep. It, they, uh, when you sue, you do a, a shotgun approach and you sue everybody because we've got ENO. If our clients are good, they've got um, their plan administrator um, liability coverage, and the insurer has got their their bank of lawyers and 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 funds behind them. So they kind of go scatter it and hit everybody a little bit.
1: Perfect. Actually, you know that you just mentioned one of the very first things that I ever learned from you was the plan administrator liability coverage.
0: Yep.
1: Just wondering if you can take a minute on that. For sure. The,
0: it's yeah. the best kept secret in the world, and I've never figured out why. Uh, plan administrator liability coverage is a rider to a business's CGL policy, commercial general liability policy. And uh, it basically is E&O coverage for plan administrators. So everything from educating to, about your benefit plan to enrolling, terminating, updating, all that type of stuff is protected. So if an employee does sue the employer, it's going to protect them up to their $1 million, $2 million, $5 million liability maximum they have. And for the most part, it's free. It's the like uh, it's the one question I ask new advisors, you know, do you know about this? Nobody knows about it. And uh, nobody teaches it. I don't think kind of uh, other than, you know, maybe me and a few others that have kind of passed it along and uh, it's kind of a get out of jail card uh, free for, uh, for clients. If they ever hit one of those
1: situations. If it's any consolation, I now do teach it at least in my live classes. I don't teach it much. It's not, it's not in our textbook. I don't think, but uh...
0: Yeah. I teach it to everybody. Like, I mean, it's one of those things where if you ever get to a court case, how do you say that there was some free insurance you could give somebody and you never told them about it because you don't know your job well enough? Like, it's just a damning kind of uh, statement, I guess.
1: Absolutely. So on that note of education, uh, can you chat a little bit about why you started Canadian Group Insurance Brokers?
0: Yeah, it really started, so um, I guess it's been about 15 years or so now since we first started it, and it started as kind of a small breakfast group of, of basically four guys that we all were friends, all in the business. And it's just kind of grown and evolved since then. But the main reason was to network and kind of build on that study group idea to share information and educate each other. Uh, At that time, the insurance companies were kind of stepping away from education more and more. The career agency system was kind of shutting down. More brokers were being kind of thrown out on their own. And about the only education that was really coming out from the insurers was product um stuff there was no technical it was just you know sales kind of stuff so I thought um you know like let's let's try and do this uh, originally I went to independent financial brokers the association to say hey you guys got to get more group content but it just they kind of quite couldn't get it off the ground I guess and um so I, I kind of said okay we'll we'll just start doing it ourselves and it just kind of evolved from there so it uh, we never thought it would be what it is now it's pretty wild
1: no, you must be at five or 600 members, something like that. No,
0: that's the saddest part. We're at 200. Oh, no yeah
1: you yeah. are yeah. yeah so
0: we've never gotten over I guess a high was about 275 or something um, even when it was free like 10 years ago when it was just kind of a loose association the highest we ever got up to was 300 and um, that always surprised me because I always said there's somewhere between 500 and 1000 group specialists in Canada so we should have all those plus we should have insurers TPAs and stuff that are in the space um, but there are aren't that many people trying to be educated, stay educated, raise the bar, all that kind of stuff and, and willing to get involved. And um, I, you know, some people will say, Oh, it's because it's $500 a year membership. And I'm like, when it was free, it wasn't an issue when it was $150, you know, it was a small issue and, and the numbers have never changed, you know? So if, if it was $5,000, I think the number would be the same,
1: you know? So I'll tell you why I thought the numbers were so big because of course, I'm in the Slack channel. You have an incredible yeah. Slack channel. And the level of engagement in there does not sound like 200 people. That, that's it, You've got a great community going there.
0: Yeah, it, it is. That's um, that's been the greatest highlight over the past couple of years. Uh, I used to kind of be the hub and spoke kind of style system. So if you needed something, you came to me and I'd shoot you in touch with other members and stuff. And I knew that was not scalable, so Slack kind of came in, and Chris Gorey, our favorite uh, benefits tech guru, kind of helped out and set it up for me, and and we've kind of gone on from there. Um, But really, out of the 200, there's maybe about 150 or 160 that are signed up on there, and there's probably about 30 that are kind of regular, almost daily contributors. Uh, A lot of the other ones just kind of pop in and out every now and then, so it adds up to a lot of content. Um, but it's amazing because I mean, I, I look during the day and I, I see a message go up that says, help, I'm trying to figure out a situation and I get into phone call, I get off the call and three people have already answered the question. So that's, that's amazing.
1: It is very impressive. I just, I think just in the last couple of weeks, there was a really detailed conversation about stop loss on, uh, on pharmacy that was like it, like a little PhD dissertation going on. Yeah, there. It
0: gets high level really quick. So if, you, if you're if you new to it, some people kind of get a little bit shocked by it and they go like, I'm not even following the acronyms, let alone the conversation. Um, but I mean, anywhere along the line, you can just say, stop, slow down, you know, give me more information. But it's, it's pretty cool. And, and people are very quick to point out options, new products, different, you know, financing models or, or things. And considering, like I have a list of about 80, uh, TPAs. We have another, whatever, 20, 24 insurance companies that are in the group space. So you've got over a hundred companies that are actively paying and that's just a starting point. So you, I mean, no one can know what everybody's product is or what it looks like. So it's a great way to kind of um,
1: exponentially increase your knowledge. And tons of on-demand stuff too, which is just great. To, you know, yeah. Help. If I want my telehealth providers, Chris has a spreadsheet for telehealth providers, right?
0: Yeah, he is a spreadsheet king. We've got a telemarketing queen. We've got a spreadsheet king. We've got a bunch of people that uh, are doing some really neat stuff. And the greatest part of it is we're all competitors to each other and everybody shares stuff all over the place. So, you know, I'll, I'll dump up something and somebody else will enhance it and then they'll share it back again. And by the time it all comes back, I look at mine and go, oh, my God, mine's crap. I got to get better, you know, and, <laughs> And it challenges you all to kind of raise the bar a little bit more, which is fantastic.
1: It is one of the barriers that I ran into. So as you know, in Edmonton and Calgary, uh, we've been doing those uh, group insurance symposia for quite some time now. And they're some of the best. I, I'm so happy with how those are gone. And of course this yeah. year we were happy to get you out to Calgary. So I could yeah. hand that over to CGID. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
0: yeah. Everybody kind of wants to hand this one over. Like where everyone's hoping it'll get to a new level and it's just, it's so hard to drag people out. And I, whether it's virtual or in reality, like it, it's, um, butts and seats and stuff, it's just, yeah, it's hard to get people to invest time in themselves and
1: stuff. I guess we just get pulled down in the day to day and everything. So it's hard. I, It is something that I I heard, though, when I was starting this, and I still hear sometimes today from folks who are group specialists, where they say, well, I don't want to come to that because it's going to be full of people that either I've taken business away from, or they've taken business away from me. Edmonton is not that big a city,
0: yeah. And I hear that all across Canada. I, I remember speaking at an event, uh, in uh, Newfoundland and St. John's and it, I mean, you talk about the smallest market, there's like, you know, 10 advisors that cover the island and some from, you know, the Labrador side and, uh, they all, you know, they're moose hunting together one day and then attacking each other's clients the next day. And, um, so there's lots of small markets out there. Um, if you do a really good job and you really are a group specialist, there's no competition. Like really there's so much business out there available. 50% of small business still doesn't have group insurance plans. And, uh, and probably half of those it's not because they can't afford it or they don't want it. It's just, they don't know what's out there and have somebody to kind of lead them by the hand. So um I, to me, from the day I started this business, I gave away everything I knew as quick as I learned it, and I got back ten times as much. So I say, if you're if you're really avoiding an event because your competition's sitting across the table, grow up. Your competition's always going to be sitting across the table, and uh, you know, might as well learn from them. Might as well know the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know, as they say.
1: Yeah, I know uh, Laurie Power always likes to go back to the rising tide floats all boats thing, and that's true. It's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And I, I do think that's what's happened. You know, I'll use your plan administrator checklist as an example of this, but it's probably seven or eight years ago that I first saw your plan administrator checklist. I think that's yeah. about right. And I've seen now tons of versions of that, yeah. that people have built that I, I I don't know if they even know the lineage of it, but that would trace yeah. back to the original one.
0: And some of them are like really, really good. Like, I mean, I see some that come back and, um, somebody will, it quite often, it'll be come back in a funny way. Somebody will say, Hey, I just ran up against a prospect and they showed me this, this guy out there in Edmonton is stealing your information. I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, he's a member. He's been out to an event. It he, he, he was given willingly, but they might be embedded in a PNC house. So you have the list, but combined with a bunch of PNC information. So you have kind of this hybrid, list that's kind of covering a whole bunch of bases when they're in with their client. And I go, wow, that's amazing. I don't do this. I don't do that, but that's, that's pretty cool.
1: You know, it's I I love seeing where it's got a a different spin on it or where it's marketed well, or there's just, yeah. And it, it does speak to, I think that idea that then you see that stuff come back and maybe you get some better ideas. It's always
0: Okay, and there's nothing yeah. new in this business. I, I like, I kind of laugh when I hear people say, well, I can't share anything. It's all proprietary. You know what? There isn't too much proprietary in this business. The group insurance benefits market grows and evolves very slowly. And even I, I came up with an amazing, in my mind, amazing product in 1999 that I built with candle life, the old candle life. And it was a hybrid health spending account. And, uh, we, we, Built it. No one had seen anything like it. It just like was totally grabbed onto by some employers that that saw it as a great answer. And I showed it to another broker, and the guy looks at me. He goes, "Oh." you just built Aetna Flex in a Box. Well, Aetna (laughs) Flex in a Box, whatever it was, was gone two years before I came into the market. So, I mean, I had recreated something that was just logical to me. And obviously it was logical to them. And then when Canada Life and Mutual both abandoned the the project and the the stuff, it disappeared for a couple of years. And all of a sudden this little upstart upstart from the west coast bbd all of a sudden comes out with a plan called ben account and it is identical to what i created and i'm like they stole my idea and they're like no but you stole it from etna you know like it's so these same ideas just kind of evolve naturally and and concurrent like next to each other consecutively concurrently and everything all at the same time
1: yeah it's i mean that and that hsa space or the defined contribution space or however you want to express it that is uh, that is one place where i do find that industry is i don't know if it's changing at a rapid pace but it sure seems like there's a lot of change happening there
0: uh, absolutely and um the companies are getting the companies in that space are doing a fantastic job of using technology where the big um insurers and stuff were very slow to adapt so things like multiple adjudication um of the same claims whether it's against deductibles or or and then health spending accounts things like that um gotten more complex so we have. Um, We have smaller companies that are doing really, really good job because they're good at the technology. Um, And that's, that's changed the game a little bit uh, in, in many areas around health spending account usage.
1: So just while you talk about the TPA and the difference between um, large insurers and the smaller companies that are innovating in the space. Yeah. I know it's something that, um, that you've chatted about a little bit here and there, but What about the role of the TPA or large insurer in fraud prevention?
0: Uh, They don't really have one. Um, And that that to me is the saddest part. Um, So I remember having a conversation with one of the big three and they had kind of bragged about saving millions of dollars in in fraud and everything. But my neighborhood, the top of Toronto, so I'm just outside of Toronto, we have uh, York region, which is kind of Markham Richmond Hill and uh, Vaughan, those three cities on the top of Toronto there's 250 million dollars of paramedical fraud just in my neighborhood, like a quarter billion dollars. So to recover 25 or 30 million dollars um, across the country is is just a drop in the bucket. So I, I mean, they do do things, but I honestly feel that there's this huge conflict. The more claims that they pay, then the more money they make off those claims. So if you really come down on fraud too much, it's onerous on employees, which becomes a burden for employers. But it also hurts the insurance companies. So I I really, I've seen the, the, especially the traditional insurers, make changes that made fraud easier and easier to do. And that I find really frustrating. Um, An example would be um, the paramedicals, massage, physio, chiropractors uh, used to have a reasonable and customary limit per treatment so for a massage it might be a standard treatment was 50 minutes 5-0 and there'd be like in ontario it might be 85 dollars would be the limit for a, a treatment well they change that to per hour so if you went in for a two or three hour massage before it would say no no a standard treatment is 85 or is 50 minutes we will cover 85 dollars well now they'll cover 85 dollars per hour so you can have these big, long appointments, which have no therapeutic benefit, and um, and it's just kind of wide open for people to misuse and abuse. And uh, when I saw that move happen and then carry on through the industry, um, it drove me nuts. And when I asked the question why, well, we're just responding to what employees wanted. And not employers, but employees. Not, not who's paying the bill, but you know where the issue is and where the fraud is coming from. So things like that um, bother me, and I think we can do a lot better. And it's not a high tech solution, but uh, one of the things we can do is, when a claim goes in, you agree to a statement, a very simple non legalese, saying you understand that if you did not receive this treatment from this practitioner or this service or whatever, that you will be fired and fraud charges pressed and criminal charge, you know, fraud a criminal charge would happen. I think if you kind of were signing off on that every time you put in a claim online, I think it would drop the numbers pretty significantly and give examples like show what dental fraud looks like, show what paramedical fraud looks like. There's a lot of things that can be done with technology that is not overly intrusive, but might make people think twice. So that's a little nudge, right? Yeah, exactly. Just kind of pushing people together. So, so I don't, I don't think, um, you know, because some TPAs don't have all those checks and balances, I don't think is necessarily a reason not to deal with them. Um, I think it's maybe better to have good plan design to uh, at least try and reduce those numbers.
1: It's a good point. And I know it's expensive and it hurts everybody when you have that fraud, but I do think people have a, sense of entitlement around it and what you're talking about might help to reduce that sense of entitlement.
0: Yeah. Especially in December when every <laughs> sign goes up outside every clinic, you know, use it up before the end of the year. And, and um yeah, I, we see those articles in the paper and, you know, in the trade magazines and stuff. And, and that's, it's a shame because um, it is, it has become more of a form of compensation rather than just straight, straight traditional insurance kind of thing. But, um, but that it's, it's not a reason to abuse it. And I think most employees kind of forget that it's the employer that they're stealing from. It's not the insurance company. The insurance company, you know, just makes money off of it, but, but it's the employer who's paying the bill at the end of the day. And by extension, then to some extent, other employees, there's. Yep. Yeah. yeah. If so it's too bad, much fraud, the costs go up and, and away you go. Just like and we've seen that in car insurance and, you know, I mean, theft and stuff at grocery stores or uh, whatever shoplifting just drives costs up. Right. So, yeah.
1: So you've done a ton of mentorship over your time. I know quite a few people that uh, that would have gotten some mentoring from you and you yeah. see folks come into the business newly, I assume a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: More so now. That's been one nice positive thing. Before, it used to only be if your mom, dad, uncle, or aunt were in the business, you got into it. But now we see people kind of stumbling in all sorts of other ways, too. So um, there's more. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, and I'm curious here. You know what? Of course, I have a background with the LLQP. And do you see this as a as a concern? Is this something that would, I guess, help the benefits industry as if we had, let's say, a separate license for group uh, oh.
0: Brokers, yeah, and I wouldn't say just for group brokers. I think, um, overall, insurance licensing itself should have um categories much like driver's licenses, where you have you know trucks and school buses and everything else. And I honestly think if you're an individual, I'm not talking corporate, just individual for a minute. You know maybe somebody can have two licenses and no more. So you could sell you know life and group or group and living benefits or you know investments and living benefit you know whatever, pick two, get those endorsements and and away you go. Um, there is very little education around group benefits and uh, and that's a shame. So I would hope that if there was that kind of whatever you call it, endorsement or different license or whatever, that there'd be the education that went along with it. and uh, I would gladly support that. I I think it would benefit um, the consumer, the employer that's putting the plan in place and I think it would really start to crack down on um, the one-offs. Yeah, the thing you got to remember in Canada, uh, almost 50% of all cases sold, group insurance cases sold, are sold by advisors who sell one case or less a year. So that's kind of like, I, to me, it's like going to a mechanic who works on one car a year or a doctor who does one physical a year or something like that. Like, that's just, that's kind of crazy. You, you would never do that in any other business. And yet we do it.
1: Yeah, the uh, I mean the LLQP and the group side. There's, it there is some group insurance content in there, but a lot of it is wrong. I, I actually, I'll it's send you true. a screen cap at some point of the uh, yeah. non-evidence max description in there, which uh, is completely yeah, completely disconnected. <laughs> Horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Hey, when I did mine, I had to learn about um, uh, the, oh, what was it called? Income. Oh, I can't think of the phrase now. It was like LTD benefits of continued survivor income benefits was nice. the phrase. And and I mean, I remember writing the exam and knowing all about it. And then afterwards going out and saying, when was the last time this was sold? And they said there was a company 20 years ago offering it, but that was the last time anyone saw it. And you kind of go, why are we learning that? Does it still exist even? You know, not good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. One one positive I will say is they did update their curriculum about six years ago and they did a fairly extensive round of consultation. So yeah. At least what is supposed to be in the curriculum <laughs> matches to reality, but sometimes what's actually written in there does not. So
0: Yeah. And and again, anyone, not just group benefits, but I mean critical illness or, you know, living benefits overall. You could go into so much more detail. And I, I remember challenging um at an event, uh, challenging one of the regulators and saying, like, we gotta make this exam harder and more specific. And uh, they came back with the answer that they did not want, this is the quote, they did not want the exam to be a barrier to entry to the industry. They didn't want to slow down the number of people being licensed. And I just, I stopped and I went, wait, isn't that the whole point? Like you want it as a barrier to entry so that people really have to kind of shine to get a license, like not just anybody. And their thing was, no, we need more people to sell and if we make it too hard, then people won't sell insurance. So let's make it simpler and easier, so everybody can get a license. And that—that that was a regulator that blew me away, you know.
1: So it's—I uh, mean, you definitely hear that approach out there. And if yeah. you—I I don't think you'll probably see this yourself, maybe, but if you look at what's happening right now with the financial advisor, financial planner title restriction in Ontario, yep, yep. And you look at the uh, the number of submissions that essentially just say, "Go with the status quo."
0: yeah um,
1: yeah it's uh, don't
0: don't mess with stuff i I remember when so I was a member of independent financial brokers. Um, from the very beginning, almost when I got licensed, and I remember going to an annual general meeting, and there was the whole discussion around continuing education credits, and uh, the room's tone, which was mainly like I was new in the business, and most of the guys have been around 30 years that were involved in the organization, and nothing against any of them, they they were all great, very knowledgeable people, but there was a big discussion around status quo, and they said like everything we learned. You know, 30 years ago is all we needed to learn. So we should just be, you know, not changing, not ongoing, not upgrading all the time. And I asked the question, I said, well, what about new people? And they're like, "Yeah, you know, like it was good enough us learning it on the go. It's good enough for you. And so I kind of stood up and I said, okay, I've been licensed for a year. If I'm going to be taking care of your son or daughter's, you know, retirement portfolio or life insurance, do you believe I have the skill set to do it? And the whole room went started laughing exactly. and I'm like, but what you're saying is I don't need to be educated. Is that what you're really mean? Or do you mean you don't want to be educated? And they're like, no, no, everybody knew they should learn everything, but <laughs> everyone who's in the business already shouldn't have to learn anything more. And you're kind of going, that's, that's kind of a crazy double standard,
1: isn't it? You know? Well, you know, Atlantic Canada today, no continuing education requirements for insurance licensed folks in any of the Atlantic provinces, right?
0: Yep. So. And, and funny enough, Newfoundland is the only province that came out with a guideline. It didn't become regulation where you have to show every option available when it comes to group insurance to clients and stuff like that, which would involve a pickup truck and possibly a trailer as well to get all right. the binders of options in. But so you kind of go, they went kind of overboard in one area and then totally... <laughs> drop the ball on another. So I, I didn't, not know
1: that for Newfoundland. That's funny.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting document when you read it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, just circling back to, uh, the risk discussion yeah. and I know, again, going back to the plan administrator checklist, it's something that you're quite focused on. How do you talk to your, your groups about the risk they face with their benefits plan?
0: Yeah. And um, I built my entire practice on reduction of liability. That was kind of a big part. And that was very early in my um, career. I kind of ended up with a bunch of employment lawyers and different things talking about where everything goes wrong. And so I went out to them and, and learned a lot more to say, okay, I want to know everything that can possibly go wrong, every lawsuit possible. And then how can we kind of resolve the problem before it's a problem and so uh it's it's everything from making sure you do administration right enrolling right terminating people right updating at the appropriate times all that type of stuff and minimizing that risk as much as possible and then kind of the last step of it all is making sure you got plan administrator liability coverage to to protect against it and it's not that it happens every day it's kinda of like a travel claim. Like, you know, you don't run into travel claims hardly ever, but when you do, it's a hundred thousand dollars or more. And and the same with these issues. And the problem I have with advisors when we talk about it is you can't point to cases very easily because they all get settled. They either get settled by the E&O carrier that represents the the advisor or by the insurer that represents the employer or the insurance company. It all gets settled behind the scenes. So you never know what the final number is. You never know who's paying what percentage of it. Um, So there's no real horror stories to make you go, oh my God, we should do this right, you know. Um, and that's that's kind of an issue. Uh somewhere along the line there'll be some court cases, but so far everybody's trying to avoid it because no one wants to set a precedent. If you all of a sudden said, hey, you know, this employer forgot and the advisor forgot to enroll everybody past their NEM, they never filled out the evidence from insurability forms. Now we have disabilities and that made the front page of the news. Well then all of a sudden anybody who was know, at the wrong number has a chance to go back and look at their case again or, or, you know, fight it and stuff like that. So I I think it's, it's one area that we can all do better and it's not a fear tactic. What we're just trying to do is make sure everybody gets the right covers that they're entitled to and that the plan is administered as it was supposed to. And by doing that, we just remove all the risk from, or almost all the risk from the employer.
1: Yeah. And the fact that a case gets settled out of court doesn't necessarily mean that the employee who didn't have a benefit that they should have had is any better off financially. It just
0: No, and quite often they're in much worse situations. So I, I've been involved in a couple of cases and one of them was my own client where an employee sued the employer and the insurer for an LTD claim that didn't pay. It was an administrative error. The insurance company declined it correctly. Like, I mean, because the information that was sent in by the employer was was wrong. It was like just it sent in the wrong number of hours that had had been worked. And so the insurer thought they were not eligible when in reality, they were working few hours because they were ill. It wasn't a scheduling thing. It was a, an illness thing. And then they sued. Well, the contingency fee was like 30%. So when they do get their monthly, you know, $4,000 a month benefit, you know almost one third of it goes to lawyers' fees, like for the rest of their life, potentially. So um you know you you kind of go, how can you afford to lose you know thirty or thirty five percent of your benefit, even if it's a lump sum benefit? that's that's a huge loss for in many cases, claims that would
1: normally be paid, and I mean, the claims should have only paid income replacement, so, yeah, carve out thirty percent in your your income.
0: Yeah, you don't want somebody who's on disability to suffer financially while they're suffering physically or mentally from the disability too.
1: Now, what about uh, contractors, employees, that whole ball of wax?
0: That's interesting because it's kind of evolved over the years. None of the rules have changed, but how people try and break them has, So, in my mind anyway. And um, so CRA has kind of said in a bunch of different documents along the way to be eligible for non-taxable private health service plans, Um, you have to be um, a full-time permanent employee or their dependents. And that's kind of been the way it's always been. Um, You can argue bits and pieces of it, but, but generally that's it so along the way we've had people push it to include shareholders you know the the employer who's not really employee they're not really drawing income but they're getting dividends which are not earnings but they're earnings based on investment and and things like that so then you kind of started adding these people to plans and and insurers not just agreed to it they actually changed earnings to include dividends and things like that with many of them and then we had contract workers which were true employees with full source deductions and they were they'd make the exception yes they're not permanent but we'll put them in a separate class with flat life and no ltd that's okay. You know, there's, there, you get an amendment to the policy to make it very clear. Um, and then along came independent contractors. And that was big out, you know, in Alberta in the oil patch, big oh. in the tech sector and in, in Ottawa and Toronto and stuff. And you have these people who are billing for their time and they're, there's no source deductions or anything like that. And they're on benefit plans and they're not an employee uh, in any shape or form. And we've had now one insurance company maybe two, depending on how you look at it, um, that have said, oh, that's okay. We don't care if you're an independent contractor or a shareholder behind a holding company, behind another holding company. You know, we'll we'll change all the wording to put you on, which if you went back to CRA, um, you'd say, does this still qualify as a PHSP? And the answer is absolutely not. And uh, in one case, we actually took two documents, put them side by side from one of the big insurers. And one said, we would never allow any of this. It's 100% offside. And then the other document says, we're allowing everything, it's 100% onside. And these documents are from the same company within one month of each other. And you go, okay, this is, this is crazy, you know? <laughs> so
1: it's, I mean, there's a whole load of tax risk there. What I see in the oil and gas sector, especially it's, you see it regionally. So, you know, I'll have a student from, Rocky mountain house and every, every oil and gas contractor in Rocky mountain house three years ago, all became independent contractors. Yeah. And
0: And there's nothing wrong with that. Just don't put them on your benefit plan. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: There, I mean, there are other things that go wrong. They often are in violation of the personal services business rules. There's, yeah, there's- Which
0: is huge. Yeah. And that's that can be a nightmare. Yeah. Um, And and to me, let's keep them arm's length. If you're going to have them billing for their time, maybe that you're even asking them to incorporate, the last thing you want to do is put them on your benefit plan to drive a nail in the coffin. Because in most cases, you've defined who's eligible for the plan, full-time permanent employees. And then you put an independent contractor on, you say, "Well, no, they're not an employee." Well, you hold up the contract and say, "Did you did you read that?" You know, <laughs> and uh, that's it's hard to argue that you you didn't think of them as employee when you put them on your employee benefit plan.
1: Yeah, so cape, and of course the risk cape. there is CPP, EI, severance pay,
0: back taxes, payment. yeah, all that stuff. I mean, and the biggest risk is a claim doesn't get paid you know, is there a disability claim or something? And they ask a question about proof of income and, you know, you got billings, all of a sudden you got a a major problem. And um, if the, the independent contractor is disabled, they thought they had full benefits. The employer, for lack of a better word, told them they had full benefits. So if you're not getting that, then you got a liability for that. And that's one that's not going to be dealt with easily because, um, you know, unless the advisor and everybody else gave them advice and the, but if the employer was just doing their own thing, then why are you putting non-employees on a plan? You know? Yeah. So it's, yeah. Risky behaviors.
1: Now, one place we have seen some lawsuits that actually got, got all the way through the courts is uh long-term disability and severance uh, termination. Yeah. kitchens here, specifically, but yeah. Um, but Eaton, again, Honda, there's, there's been a few. There. Yeah. sorry.
0: Yeah. Uh, Eaton and Honda, or I always screw up, which is which, but there's a couple other ones where, yeah, during the severance period you have to keep LTD, but no insurance company will actually cover people during the severance period. Um, there's some individual products like Hunter McCorkidale's transition LTD and stuff. Um, all the more reason why advisors have to help, um, employers at point of termination. So if, you know, if it's that messy, a non-causal termination, then making sure that the right extension of benefits is there. And if there's a request for severance, then you're offering an extension of benefits without LTD and you're getting a sign off from the employers. Now, we're, we're not trying to make benefit advisors into HR professionals or anything, but just kind of knowing what to be careful of. And a, a good example, a few years ago, I had a, an advisor who's a pretty good group guy. Uh, got a phone call from a client and the client said, look, this person hasn't showed up for like three months. Like they just abandoned their job. Can I terminate them from the plan? And the advisor goes, well, of course you can. Like if they're not an employee anymore, terminate them. So they terminated them. And like within a week, they got a, a, a human rights complaint because the person was often disabled and they'd been hospitalized like through a big chunk of the time. And so I'm like, hold on a minute. Like what, what have you done? And and he said, well, I the guy hadn't been around for a while. I go, well, how did he leave work? Oh, he left sick. But they never heard from him ever again. And I'm like, the guy could be in a coma. Like, like, how do you not do some investigating or something? And once you terminate somebody, it's it's hard to get them back on the plan, especially when they're, you know, disabled and stuff. So those things can get really, really messy.
1: Absolutely. And of course, Ontario is pretty clear about the uh requirement to maintain LTD post termination. I think that's not as clear under other provinces.
0: Yeah, it's only clear though during the pay-in-lieu of notice period. So like that part, it says they must, but the courts have said in the severance period beyond that you have to, but the insurance companies have said we can't do that because you're not actively at work. So it gets to be muddier once you get past that, you know, eight week limit or whatever.
1: That's That's fair. Now, I know that you have your, um, let's say, favorites amongst the group of insurers and your less favorites. <laughs> yes. The group of insurers. Um, how did you pick and choose that? What What are your criteria for picking what insurers to deal with?
0: That That's actually been an interesting evolutionary process, too. So in the early days, when I picked who I wanted to work with, it was when I was telemarketing and I would keep running into the same insurance companies over and over again that did a good job and people were happy and I wasn't getting the opportunity to get into those companies as much. I went, wow, if they're doing a good job in service and everything else, then that was kind of a, a hint that I should look at that company. And then I used to have a fact finding sheet and the, it asked all the questions of what we would call maybe field underwriting. Like, you know, do you cover, you know, roofers and small business and family content and high LTD and do you have good NEMs? And we would kind of use that to determine which companies we want to deal with. And we slowly add people to our, our stable, if you will, um, insurers. And, um, then over the years, insurers started to let me down and we started removing them from the list. So, uh, whether it was, uh, some insurers that have set up absolutely, direct competition side by side, you know, and they've even announced that they would take our clients away and take them direct. That to me is a good sign. You don't want to partner with brokers. So we step away. Uh, We had one insurance company who dumped our entire client list, actually every, uh, Ontario, not just Ontario, Canada-wide, every small client from one to two hundred employees, I think it was, they dumped to one of our competitors, and said, "You can go market to that," and and stood behind that choice. Um, and that. that to me, yeah, that to me was a good sign to you no know, walk away from that company, amongst other things. Um, and the, I think one of the biggest these days is service. Um, the service levels from some of the insurers has just been dropping and dropping and dropping. So whether it's response time, new issue. Time, time, amendment time, um, and whether it's advisor response time, employer or employee response time to customer service complaints or questions or problems, we've just seen that kind of drop off uh, really poorly. So I um, now take more off the list than I add onto the list and where I see it going, because your next question is going to be, well, how do you add on to the list again? And it's becoming more and more TPAs. Um, because I think the insurers are in a great position to produce product, the insurance product, but TPAs are a much better way to deliver it. Um, they're more flexible. They can kind of bundle stuff all together. And uh, so I keep saying kind of the future, the next decade is for the TPAs to, you know, rise and, and shine uh, if they want it. And uh, we now have TPAs that would be in the top, you know, 10, 10, As far as size with insurance companies and, and a handful of TPAs are bigger than half the insurance companies in Canada. So, uh, that's, um, that's saying that they're getting there pretty fast.
1: Yeah. You mentioned uh, BBD before in the, yeah. the episode before this, will have been Mike McClenahan at uh, BBD. So yeah.
0: And they've been, they've been great. I mean, they've done a, a lot of neat things. So I've, I deal with BBD a fair amount and they, they bring together, I mean, they're using empire life now for life and disability as kind of one of their newer players and claim Secure, and, you know, as well as green shield. And I think they've used SSQ and stuff in the past. So they're really bringing different solutions to the table um, where we're not kind of locked into, just one thing. So that is um that's what they're good at. And uh and they're they're very responsive service-wise. Uh things like amendments are done in probably one tenth the time of a traditional insurance company. So when you want to kind of make the change and get it across to the client, get it off your desk, you know it's gonna happen when you're dealing with with the the TPAs and BBD just being one.
1: Now what about the group MGAs? Yeah, that's
0: interesting too. So, uh that's kind of an Ontario-centric Kind of thing that's gone out to Quebec and now come out west as well. Um, I think in some ways it should be the future of group insurance. So instead of kind of all these onesie advisors that are kind of the the one-off cases, I think the MGAs could fulfill a really good role, just like they do in the individual side. Um, so you know the insurance companies originally weren't having to oversee and deal with a million, you know, or a hundred thousand advisors across Canada that were selling their product. Um, I think they've fallen a little bit short. I think they could do a lot better in education and and things like that to try and um, hone the group specialists and stuff. But they have also – they have – as they've picked who they work with, they're trying to pick people that are more and more group focused. So they're kind of starting to get away from the onesies, twosies people. And uh, that in itself has kind of, I think, streamlined operations a bit, but I think it just makes so much sense. I'm, I'm home-based one person um, solo advisor. Um, I really don't want to worry about hiring, training, you know, supervising employees. I just, that, That's, I know I'm really bad at all those things. So, um, using a group MGA just makes so much sense. If somebody goes off on that leave or is off sick or, or leaves a company, there's somebody else drops in that same day. And, uh, no, I I could never do that. Like I could never have somebody else backed up, totally trained and ready to go if, if I had an employee. So, um, I think there's a, there, they have a lot of space to grow. And, uh, I think a lot of advisors have not worked with them because of just kind of believing too many tales out there and not really done their due diligence. But I think it's, it's a, a great value. It's, and it's not the people who don't know group. That work with group MGAs, it's the ones that do and see the the value in it.
1: Now, just well, because there's a little bit of overlap here. What about the consolidators?
0: Oh yeah, that's uh, that does make everything messy. Yeah, so <laughs> you've got the the Gallagher's, the hubs, the People Corps, the NFPs, uh, to name a few. Um, it's getting confusing because they both have direct change and indirect uh, channels. So they, uh, the direct chain is going, you know, straight out to the employers and they've got their own brokerages that are doing that. And then they have TPAs and MGAs that are working with advisors. Um, They have to separate them. Like they, somewhere along the line, kind of like when uh, Morneau Chappelle did that merger and stuff and you build Chinese walls in between um, you have to kind of somehow figure out how to, straddle that line so that's going to be their big challenge. Is you know are you working with me or against me are you my partner or are you my competition um so far it's um it hasn't been a real issue uh, because everyone's trying to keep business running and profitable and going forward uh nobody's kind of crossed the line to say okay we're going to attack you know a whole pile of clients um and try and steal their clients away because I think it would end them pretty quickly and it would be a, a poor business decision. So I think it's kind of self-regulating to some degree. It's not it's not ideal, but I I'm not I'm not worried about it.
1: Yeah, it is this uh this balancing act, I'm sure, for them to and and then you add the cause a lot of them now have their tech platforms too that are owned by those consolidators.
0: Yeah. And, and I will say um, to anybody that sees it as a risk, is it any greater risk than what the insurance companies are doing? You know, so the insurance companies have their tech platforms, they go direct, and, you know, it used to only be the large companies, you know, over a thousand employees, they went direct. And now, you know, some of the companies are going down to the small ones and they may throw an advisor's name kind of in front of it, but it's a, a direct sale really. So uh, I think that the entire market is kind of sometimes losing focus of who is a client and, 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 stuff like that.
1: Yeah. On that note, uh, from, from your perspective, then how do you make sure that, that you continue to own the client relationship or do you even see that as a, as something that you're supposed to take care of?
0: So, yeah. So it depends on whose client we're talking about and everything, but you're right. So I think my clients are my clients period. So I only care about one person and that is the employer I don't care about their employees. I mean, I help their employees, but I don't care about them um, because my relationship, my contract, my pay and everything else is working with the employer, the insurer is my partner. And yes, I know legally that, you know, when we sign a group insurance contract, they're delivering, you know, stuff direct and everything. But if client, if the insurers forget that we are their partner or that we are the client and the customer that we bring to them is ours, then we take them away. So I had a, one of my preferred insurance companies, um, some years back, I moved on my whole block of business and every single client, I just said, we're going to move you. This is where we're going to move you. This is why every person went without without a hesitation for one second. And so, um, I think that, you know, if the insurance company had said, Hey, we're going to move you away from Dave. I don't think they would have been nearly as successful as it was me saying, I'm going to move you away from that insurance company. Um, I think we have a duty of care to our employers. That's who we're trying to protect, you know, and, um, I think that's getting lost on a lot of people. We see the insurers that see our clients being their clients, and our clients' employees being their clients. So doing direct sales and stuff like that, and I think it's really short-sighted. I think it's it's you know trying to chase some pennies and forgetting about the dollars uh, in the whole equation, and uh, and it's made the decision for me not to deal with some of those companies, unfortunately.
1: Now, a lot of the folks listening will be folks who just have one or two or maybe a a small number of groups like that. Yeah. What advice would you have for those folks if you can, like, is it, should they be getting more education? Should they be trying to build up that group business? Should they be dealing with somebody else to run their group?
0: I think I th- okay, so it depends on where you are in your maturity level in the business. So if you're brand new to the business, you're gonna do anything and take every piece of business you possibly can just to survive. and I, I get that we've all been there. But I think really quickly, you find out what stuff you like to do. Do you like you know life insurance and doing the dining room table, you know weekends and, and the evenings thing? Um, do you like living benefits? Do you like group insurance, you know, Monday to Friday, nine to five? Um, and and you get, some stuff that you're kind of, it's either a comfort zone or you enjoy the the relationship. I always liked group because it's business to business. So I'm not doing dining room tables, you know, presentations and stuff. I get that. Um, I think there's a huge need for that. Actually, probably even greater than group insurance, maybe. But um, I, I think what we have to do is become a specialist at whatever it is you love to do. Uh, and it may be what you're best at or it may be what you are most passionate about and refer off the other stuff. So one of the things I have on my website is a need help page. And it's like need need help question mark. So my clients can go there if they want individual life insurance, an accountant, a bookkeeper, an HR consultant. Everything I don't do is there. And um, in just about every area, individual travel, you know, you name it. And so I've got people all over Canada, the US the world actually now where I can refer you off to somebody that is good in that area. So I would never consider doing you know, U.S. benefits for a company. I'd connect them with, you know, Ned Havern um, down in the States and that's his world. He lives there and and he understands the marketplace and his license there. And I think that's the secret is as soon as you figure out what you love to do, focus and specialize on that and then connect with people to give away all the other business and you'll be further ahead. By me focusing on group, I don't sell individual life. I don't do investments. I don't do group RSPs. I give it all. no, No commission sharing, no referral fees. Buy me a coffee, buy me a beer. You know, I'm happy, but I give it all away. And the coolest thing is I haven't made a cold call in over 12 years. Um, every year my block grows and every year I have new clients come in and it's all just referral word of mouth, you know, brand recognition and all that kind of stuff.
1: I think that's a good piece of advice in general. And the idea of finding your specialization, finding your home.
0: Yeah. It's,
1: yeah. Um, now I have to ask because I love this so much. Can you just talk about your uh, sort of vacation strategy a little bit here? Your uh, oh, your yeah.
0: Sense? So um, I had, I, I think goals are really good, and I'm not really, uh, really good at setting them, like the the smart goals that everybody's supposed to use. But before I started the business, before it was. Before I was licensed, I came up with a goals for mainstay and that's my brokerage. And it was going to be, I wanted to sell a million dollars of group insurance premium, which in general would give me 10% commission or about hundred thousand dollars a year. And I was leaving a job where I was making about, I think 77,000 a year. So that was kind of my target number. And I wanted to start with two weeks of vacation and add a half week every year. So, I thought that those are my two goals. I, I was never going to change them and they have never changed. So, I, I passed the million dollar mark of premium many years ago, got up over four and then down to three and back up and down. Um, and last year was 13 and a half weeks of vacation. This year, had it not been for COVID, you know, 14 next year, 14 and a half and so on. And the idea was the longer I worked, I just, I would never retire. I would just somewhere along the line, be permanently on vacation. And, um and it, and my clients all know it. And so when I get a new prospect, I kind of make them really aware of, this is what I do. This is who I am. And if they don't like it, tell me right away and we can just find somebody else that'll work better with you. Um, but even when I'm on vacation, quite often, like about seven, six or seven weeks of vacation is just sailing in Lake Ontario on, wednesdays and fridays and i take anybody that's in town that wants to come clients advisors cgib members um and they can just come out sailing for a half day or for the day with their office staff or friends or you're not allowed to bring your clients but anything else and uh, i always joke and i say if you bring your clients on board no problem but nobody gets off the boat without signing an aor so that's (laughs) that's the downside but um but so so i'm still in touch like i'm still close and uh it, it it's not like i've you know, sailed across the ocean and and disappeared for six months. Although you know, last year I did sail across the Atlantic Ocean and did disappear for three weeks. But but the clients all knew that and they tracked me on the thing. It's on my website and stuff like that. So um, there's no surprise when it happens. Yeah,
1: yeah I remember checking out your uh, you're docked in the middle of the North Atlantic. Yeah,
0: yeah, going yeah, um, swimming and it was eighteen thousand feet deep. Yeah, yeah. Look before you dive.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, so, any uh, last-minute thoughts, Dave? Anything you'd like to share with the audience?
0: Um, yeah, I got this like new little book I was reading uh, <laughs> or is writing. Is the paper is that the paper version. This is this is the paperback. I just got one the other day. Oh, so um, yeah, so um, they it's, it's all the same size and everything. So um, back in November, December last year, I started writing a book, and the idea was I was going to write this for retirement. And so I was jotting down ideas. And I thought when I get around to retirement, which will be like never, but like maybe when I'm 75, I'd actually write a book. And so it just kind of became this thing as we were traveling and I was at airports and different things. I just kind of write more and more. And then by February, I had kind of a whole draft of a book written and my wife was going to Gambia, um, to do some kind of mission work and in Africa. And so I gave her the the printout and said, here, read this when you're on the plane on the 18 hour flight or whatever it is, and let me know what you think. And she came back and she went, you know what, it's not that crappy. (laughs) <laughs> Which is like you know huge for her, because like, she's like you know, she's my uh, my editor and everything, and she said it's actually really good. You should kind of keep going. So I um, we went away on vacation in March to St. Martin sailing, and COVID happened, and I'm a huge voracious reader, and uh, when COVID hit, I couldn't read anymore. Um, like technically I could read, don't, don't, I didn't go blind or anything, but I mean, I just, I found like, I couldn't sit down and read, but I could write. So I just kind of started rewriting and rewriting. And by June, I'd had a couple of friends edit it. By June, I found a publisher, um, by the end of October, it was published and stuff and it's called selling benefits and the website SellingBenefits.ca. And it's, it's not really, it's kind of a business relationship. Book And it's the 20 things I've learned over the years that helped me in the business. And there it's about benefits, but it relates to almost any business. And I mean, for that matter, any relationship that you have with somebody and uh, in it, we have lots of sailing stories and, and pictures and travels and stuff that tie into it. So it's not uh, it's not all technical and boring and it's like nice little chunks. So it makes it a, an easy read and stuff
1: like that. And by the time this episode goes live, it will be available for mass purchase? And pay yeah. Purchase. Is it? It'll be too late for a Christmas present?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I've got the printed ones coming in the beginning of December, so I'll have a pile of them here. Um, you can get it on Kindle, Kobo, Google Play now to download immediately. Uh, And Friesen Press is my publisher. um, You can get hardcover and softcover there and they deliver in about two weeks. So um, you can get it. The Amazon websites are much slower to bring it up. And the thing I learned about the printing industry is I always thought that the printers printed, you know, a thousand books, put them on the shelf and then pulled them. They print every book one at a time just for you it's called print on demand. So it's just, you know, high tech laser printers or inkjet printers and they print and bind and cover and cut and one book goes out. So uh, that's driven the cost up quite a bit, but it's also meant a lot of self-published books can get out that normally would never see the light of day. So it's, it's interesting.
1: Yeah. We've used that for textbooks now, actually. We used to to order them by the thousands and have crates of textbooks in the back of the, I like in a storage room and uh, yeah. no more inventory, no, uh, yeah. keeps, no. Keeps
0: the down, So it does. It does. So that's, that's been my new thing. And the second book is already, uh, two thirds of the way done. And the third book has already started. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think I'm following Lori's, uh, Lori Powers uh, thing of, uh, she has her insurance stuff and her fictional stuff. And my third book is a fictional one. So okay. we'll, uh, we'll see where, if it ever makes the light of day, but.
1: Yeah. Perfect. She has uh cookbooks and children's books too, actually. Oh really? Oh wow. So you really have to branch out to yeah, yeah I'm
0: not going that far. Yeah. <laughs> right. Maybe I'll do a barbecuing book. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> else? no. Um
1: you could do barbecuing at sea, something like that. They have interest Yeah, there.
0: we can do that. Yeah. How to yeah. catch your dinner and cook it and, and everything yeah. from from sea to plate. Perfect.
1: Um so I guess then, yeah, I, I meant to ask you specifically about the book. That's my oversight. Anything else you mm-hmm. wanted to share then on our uh
0: Um, No, I, I, overall, I think you've hit on lots of good things. If, if I could say one piece of advice to people is whatever part of this industry you're in, just specialize as much as you can Um, build great relationships with other people and do one thing really, really well. Um, You know, if you, whether you're going to a lawyer or a brain surgeon or, you know, or a doctor, um, whatever you want, the best of the best um, to, and I don't think benefits or any other part of insurance should be any different than that. And um, if you do it, the the positive ramifications are huge. Not just in you know having your your brand and your name and stuff known, um, but I mean it also means you get paid you know way better than we are trying to be a jack of all trades. And now with technology, especially during COVID, we've learned that you can work from anywhere and have clients anywhere. So you know, apart from licensing and limiting us to provinces and things like that. Um, you don't have to be in the backyard of, of somebody, you could be in Northern Ontario and selling in Toronto, just as much as the other way around. So I, I think that's a big thing. And as soon as you specialize, your education game goes through the roof. And you just have to kind of keep raising the bar and searching out better and better sources of education. And there is literally a ton of it out there. There isn't a day that I don't continue my learning. And uh, whether it's in pharmaceutical or whether it's in HR or, you know, all the different areas around us that touch, there's there's no shortage.
1: Yeah, 100%. Well, thanks so much, Dave. As always, you're so generous with your knowledge and wisdom. Thank you.
0: Um, That's been a great opportunity. I had a good chatting with you.
1: Okay, lots there. I wanted to just pick up on a couple of things Dave had mentioned. First off, CGIB. If you can do it, if you're selling more than one group insurance contract a year, and honestly, probably if you're selling just one group insurance contract a year, you should be a CGIB member. And if you're a CGIB member, get on the forums. The forums are incredible. Every day, I check the CGIB forums. They're very easy to use. It's on Slack, which is very uh, friendly for the casual user, very easy to use on your phone. And I see these high-level discussions where we really explore all kinds of interesting areas in group benefits. There is no better way to get to know group benefits. It's not expensive. It's uh, 500 bucks a year to be a CGIB member, and I would suggest it is uh, well worth it to do so. And Dave, like a few of our recent guests, is also a published author, having recently finished his book, Selling Benefits. And I will be picking up my copy. I haven't bought it yet. I'm going to pick up the uh, book from Friesen Press here. I'll include the link to order that. I'll actually be picking up a couple of copies of this. It looks like it'll be a quality read. And of course, we hear just in that interview how much uh, great wisdom Dave has to share in the benefits world. I think that this fills a niche quite nicely that uh, up to this point, We have Lori Power's book on uh, benefits, and now we get Dave's view as well. I think that this is something that uh, we can really learn from here. If you have an area where you have a particular expertise, you don't necessarily have to write a book, but sit down, write a blog post. You can hear that's sort of how Dave started. He didn't intend to write a book, but it sort of spun out by accident. Or pull out your camera, record a video, or start a podcast. There's all kinds of ways to do this. I think there's really something to be said for translating that expertise into a finished product. The number for this episode is six. The number
2: for this episode is six. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz and also you'll have to pay attention to the interview there are 5 questions in there and you'll want to do well on all 5 pass grade is 60% so the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online that's bcc is in business career college so pop over to bccquiz.online there's a short 5 question quiz there You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. and It's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea. But I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to Bccquiz.online. Fifteen bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now, or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to Bccquiz.online and subscribe.
1: I did want to take just a moment here to acknowledge a couple of comments I've gotten about the podcast. I love getting these emails because it shows me that people are listening and paying attention. And I like when people uh, pick up on something that I may not have gotten correct and send me a note about it. So I want to acknowledge uh, Gilbert here. Gilbert in uh, Houston, B.C., way deep in the interior. And Gilbert was good enough to fire me a note here about the RCA episode. So a few episodes ago, I had talked with Tim about retirement compensation arrangements. And I had uh, indicated in there that it was possible to sort of run out the RCA and still have funds left in the CRA withholding account. And Gilbert pointed out that it's really not possible. And I would agree with that. In practice, it's not possible. That's the benefit of working with an actuary on a concept like that. You're just not going to run out the RCA and leave funds behind with Canada Revenue Agency. So thanks, Gilbert. That's a good point. And the other similar uh, feedback I have is from Carrie right here in Edmonton. And Kerry uh, pointed out that in the RDSP episode, Jonathan and I had talked about transferring RDSPs. Carrie made a couple of great comments here. First off, I think that Jonathan left the impression that it was impossible to transfer an RDSP from one institution to the other. That's on me. I don't mean to blame Jonathan for that. And that's not true. It is possible to move an RDSP from one institution to another. It's a lot of work, not an easy thing to do. But if you have a client who has an RDSP one place, it is possible to move it and have it under your firm's management. And then the other thing that Kerry uh, rightly pointed out here is that if you happen to be on the investment council side and you have an RDSP account, you really can hold any sort of investments here. As long as you have a custodian who is an RDSP authorized provider, that's perfectly fine. And Kerry points out, for example, that you could have an RDSP that holds dimensional funds. And that's exactly right. That's really a question of the custodian. If you're on the MFDA side, the mutual fund side, you're going to be more restricted. You're typically restricted to a family based on their particular fund codes. And of course, if you're only insurance licensed, as we've previously discussed, then you cannot have any sort of RDSP activity, at least not as of December of 2020. Okay, please join us in a couple of weeks when our guest will be, assuming that I don't mess everything up again, Mike McClenahan from Benefits by Design. And I hope that uh, everybody learns something about the group benefits space here. Thank you. A few people help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing and music and a bunch of the technology stuff in the background. Maria Nguyen, gets all of our various accreditations done through the uh, various accrediting bodies. And Colton Nierbeski and his team make sure that the word gets out, they take care of the marketing and all that goes along with that.